0: Wow, it's great to be with you. Good morning, and uh, it's just—it's a thrill to be at, at your church. I've known Ellerslie Road Baptist, having been in Edmonton for 30 years of ministry. I knew all of your pastors over the last 30 years. We would get together with other pastors of other denominations and talk about what God is doing in Edmonton to make Jesus famous. And so we—I consider it a great joy to know about the church and and Dave and Jenna. I gotta say, there's some history there, as Dave said. I've Known them since grade six. If you want any stories, talk to me afterwards. Uh, I just love to see God working in Dave's life as someone who is fully devoted to Jesus and just saying, "God, here am I. Use me," and to see what God has been doing in his life. And so, Dave, it's a, it's a great joy. And and for Jenna, Jenna was his wife was on our staff at Beulah for a while, worked just outside my office, and Dave took her away. And so we we <laughs> forgave him for that, but uh, we love you guys and the faithful witness that you've had over the decades, and 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 certainly. Uh, in the ministry here at Ellerslie. You know, these past couple of weeks, you've been looking at the story of Noah. When Dave asked if I would uh, speak about this, I thought, man, it's such an amazing story. It is perhaps one of the best-known stories in Scripture. Uh, maybe you were here last week. Some of you are doing vacation, long weekend. You maybe missed it. But you know, this story is of incredible fame when it comes to kids. I sold some uh, children's books on marketplace. Uh, ones we had for our grandkids, and one of the ones that was on the very top of the stack was the childhood book on Noah and the Ark. Very interesting. Every parent tells their kids that story. Animals, two by two. And, but then, hang on a second. Have you ever thought the whole scenario of God being grieved over human sin and he's bringing judgment, there's going to be destruction. This story should be PG-13. <laughs> and we've got little you know, mobiles over kids' cribs and that kind of stuff, looking at it. And you go, this is a significant story it's a controversial story it's although one of the most best-known stories of Scripture in general culture many of you going through university would have heard a professor taking shots at the Bible's reliability or objections to the Christian faith saying how could this ever be there's all kinds of questions one question about the story is is it is is it a historical story just to give you a bit of background, I thought we'd do a little bit of, just kind of some spade work on the story before we get into the details of the last half of the story. But James Montgomery Boyce, he actually uh, acknowledges some 200 examples of flood stories that are recorded in either ancient documents or in traditions of various cultures around the world. It's a common story. One writer said 270 cultures mention a flood story. I haven't investigated always for myself, but... The fact that there's so many uh, records of the flood seems to give credence to the fact that Scripture is giving to us a historical report when it speaks of the flood and would give reference to it throughout. In the Bible, it's grammatically in historical narrative form. It's not just a mythical story. It's giving to us the fact that something actually had taken place, gives us specific details, reference in other places. It is historical, not mythical. People ask the questions, well what did the ark look like? I even wonder why they called the boat an ark. And kind of digging into it, you ever recognize that maybe it was a reference to the ark of the covenant, this foreshadow of what would be a place of deliverance. But it's interesting when you dig into the Hebrew language, you find the word for ark there, or this boat, or this ship, or this this monstrosity that Moses would build over a hundred years. What you discover is the word is only used in two places. It's a uh, very unique word. Uh, tabach in Hebrews, I don't speak Hebrew but it's kind of what it sounds like if you do you can correct me on this only used twice, in this location the other place is describing the bulrush basket that Moses was placed into in the river Nile very interesting, those are the only two places and actually theologians digging into this word said what, is it, what does this mean what is the concept here and they said actually it's the idea of, of a lifeboat Because think of it, the ark, 500 feet approximately in length. Uh, Someone said like a million cubic feet. This thing is huge, three decks, wooden, massive. And here's Moses' bulrush basket, little wicker basket. Both floated, both preserved life, both were covered, but their similarity ends there. If the word implies anything of shape, maybe it's an Egyptian basket-like shape or maybe rounded, some figure more square. But here's the important thing, is the word actually means a place of refuge. It's not a cruise ship. It's a place of rescue. It's chosen purposely and significantly. Here's a question. How many animals did it hold? How how is that possible? I don't know. (laughs) But the analysis of the size suggests it could have held thousands of animals. Here's another, I think, interesting que- uh, quandary that we, we look at in this one that I, in doing some research was, is some asked the question, did the flood cover the entire earth? Those of you who want to dig into history go, well, hang on, is it a global flood or, or what exactly was it? And there's actually two views on this. And so I'll take a little risk here, Dave, I can t- jump into this a little bit. So just listen. There are those who love Jesus, love the word of God, respected theologians and even scientists people who love the gospel who hold to a global theory that and that the the flood was over the whole earth every animal got on and got inside of it and they hold this view very tenaciously it's the traditional view I was taught that as a child but then there's others who in looking at the language and studying through the book of Genesis they recognize some some other point of view that may say this was actually a regional flood I mean huge in its scope but it may not have been the entire earth you say what, what, what do you mean by this? Uh, some of you know of the late pastor, theologian, and writer Tim Keller. Here's what he wrote. He said, on one hand, those who insist on there being a world flood seem to deny much of the scientific evidence that there was no such thing. On the other hand, those who insist that it's legend or myth seem to ignore too much of the trustworthiness of Scripture. After Genesis 1, the rest of Genesis reads like a historical narrative. If it is asked What are the biblical assertions that the flood covered every mountain over the whole earth? We should remember the Bible often speaks of the known world as the whole world. The known world is the whole world. You say, well, hang on, where where in Scripture do you see this? Well, if you jump down in your Bible, page four, really fast, and quote Genesis 41 and look at another story where you find that Joseph is in Egypt there and God has sent him to provide for the family of Jacob and for Israel, the text reads like this. When the famine had spread over the land, Joseph opened up all the storehouse and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth." Now, probably no one would read that and say that people came from Australia and from India and from Africa and everywhere to to Egypt. It wouldn't make sense. They wouldn't even have known about it. The earth was so much different in those days. But you find in scripture at times, linguistically, they'll describe the whole as being the entire known space at that time. So I, I, I share this with you because even the new international Uh, uh, Zondervan Study Bible it's interesting, D.A. Carson in there he makes a comment, he says some theologians see clearly global and scientists, other respected evangelical Bible believing love Jesus all their hearts, look at it and say it could have been regional so friends, don't dismiss your Bible when you read these stories, but do some good digging on it, so friends, we underscore this is historical, there was a flood it really happened May, not, may or may not have been global. If you have your conviction, go with that. So here's another question. Where did the ark end up? In Kentucky. I mean, as, here's a picture of the Kentucky ark. I mean, you're going, hey, whoa, I don't remember reading that. It's actually in the mountains of, of Turkey, uh, Mount Ararat, or the mountains of Ararat, what that place. But some guys decided, let's build an ark down in Kentucky. And they actually tried to build a replica. And they see, it's an amazing thing to see. This is an amazing story. It's remarkable literature. If you were last week, you were reminded of the fact that the, the writer here, because it was a verbal culture, they used a chiastic form that was incredibly detailed. And they're, they're wanting the, the readers to be able to restore the story in their minds. And so with careful, careful writing, you'll find this artistic structure. We'll throw it up on the screen again by way of reminder if you weren't here last week. But I find this fascinating. You find that God resolves to destroy the human race in chapter 6. God's heart is broken over sin. Then Noah builds the ark according to God's instruction. Then the Lord commands the remnant to enter into the ark. Noah and his family and the animals. Then the flood begins, chapter 7. The flood prevails for 150 days. The mountains are covered. And then there's this epicenter of the story. God remembers Noah, chapter 8, verse 1. And then you see the story open back up again. The, earth, the flood recedes for 150 days. The mountains are now visible. The earth dries. The Lord commands his remnant not just to get on the boat. Now he's telling them to get off the boat. And Noah builds an altar in obedience and devotion to God. And the Lord resolves not to destroy humankind. I hope you read through chapter 6 through 9 in Genesis on your own and recognize how chapter 6 mirrors chapter 8. You see the piece mirroring the corresponding part. And you see that center point of God remembering Noah in chapter 8, verse 1. It highlights God's faithfulness to Noah. It highlights Noah as a person who's being saved from judgment. That God is the one who saves him. It's very creative. It's artistic in its arrangement and narrative. This is a significant book. Now, when you get the arc of the story, I think there's three movements in the story that I hope you underscore. The first one is... I'll call it the wave of judgment. In chapter 7, the flood comes. The whole narrative here is, in the way it's worded, says that God is broken over sin and he enacts judgment according to his holiness on a wicked society, a sinful people. And it's interesting in chapter seven, doing a little bit of research on the language and the words that are used there, there's a word that says, I think in the King James version and a couple others, it says, the water prevailed. It says that in the floods, the water came and it prevailed. Actually, I think it's five times or four times in chapter seven, it says the water prevailed. And it's a very intentional word that's used there. It signifies the water is, is, is chaotic and it's It's the the forces of evil against the judgment or the wrath of God. And this Hebrew word prevail, describing the water, is like a military form. It's the idea of the triumph to overcome. It's as if the the author, catch this, he's personifying the waves and the sea as though God's army is marching over the earth to bring judgment. He says, the water prevails, it's powerful, the first Movement in the story is you see, is God's judgment over sin. You see this concept in Psalm uh, chapter 88 or Psalm 88. It says, Your wrath lies heavy on me, and you overcome me with all your waves. The psalmist is seeing God the Lord of the storm, that the storm comes with fury against the people of God and against the people who are sinful as an act of judgment. There's your waves of judgment. So the first movement is these. It says, the water's prevailing. It's like God is judging sin. The second movement in the story, or the, I'll call it the winds of deliverance or the winds of salvation. The winds of rescue. The centerpiece of the narrative. And I want you to catch this chapter eight if you haven't seen it before. Maybe last week you're, you're kind of settling on this. It says, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with them in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. Those three words, God remembered Noah. It's the literary center of the story. It's the first time this word remember shows up in scripture. God remembered Noah and all the animals and and the water subsided. Notice it doesn't say God did not forget about Noah. It says he remembered Noah. When we use the word remember in English, it's usually that you're remembering restoring something that you've forgotten, right? When you say, hey, I forgot about this, or I forgot about this. Oh, I remembered this. Oh, I remembered I should have. I remembered this. I remembered that. No, it's because you've you've lost mind of it. This would be the idea of behind atheism or or agnosticism. Two worldviews where God is either absent, irrelevant, or at worst, disinterested. God did not forget about Noah as though he, he has a memory problem. It also doesn't say that Noah remembered God. It doesn't say that he remembered God. No, friends, that would make the outcome of the story dependent on Noah if that was the center. That's the way of religion and rule keeping. If I do things, then God's going to. If this is how it works, the pressure's on you and me to perform in order to be on the good side of God. But it's interesting, it says God remembered Noah. This expression, God remembers, occurs 73 times in the Bible. Every time God remembers, it means God will act for someone according to his covenant purpose. One writer put it this way. He says, when God remembers, God will surprise, stun, overwhelm, lavish, unexpected, and undeserved goodness and grace on his people. Wow. God remembered. Now, what does it mean when God remembers? It means that God is affirming. God is... is is uh, making a statement, of promise. It's like, it's like saying to your partner, you know, I remember that I married to you. I remember the covenant I made. I remember the promise I made that day. It's not that you forgot it, you're affirming it. So God says, he remembered Noah and Noah's faithfulness. This is a beautiful thing about God. He, he, he's not forgetful about you like, oh, I forgot about you. This is really important to us today. Because I think sometimes we wonder if God's forgotten us. Maybe you're going through something of a storm in your life. Maybe it's been like raining for 40 days and 40 nights. The storms are raging around you. You don't see an end in sight. But listen, friends, if you know God, you have a covenant relationship with him. He does remember you. He knows you. He sees you. And you need to know this and take hope in this. Contrast how the flood stories explained in the other 200 stories that you find in these other cultures. It's very interesting. In these stories, you actually find there's a plethora of little gods. And these gods are annoyed and inconvenienced by the noise and commotion of the humans on earth. There's overpopulation. So these little gods decide they're going to send a flood on earth. These are the narratives of other cultures. This is incredibly different in the story of the one true sovereign God who's grieved in his heart over the spread of wickedness. What it's doing to his people and to his creation. In the other accounts we actually read these little gods they send a flood to the earth but in their stories they can't stop the flood. They can't control it. They panic. Chaos you know results ensues. But in the Bible we read that our all powerful God and his holiness and his justice Brings out judgment, but then there's this beautiful expression: God makes the wind blow, and He makes the water stop. Friends, He can do that. These little gods in their stories, no, they couldn't, but our God, He can. He can do anything. And this word "wind" is very important. The word "wind" is the same Hebrew word that's used in Genesis one, two, that the Spirit of the Lord moved over or blew over the face of the waters. It's the same word. This is the wind of God, the Spirit of God, the breath of God. God remembers His word to Noah. And the waters begin to subside. We have the waves of judgment. We have the waves of the wind of God's deliverance by his spirit, where he begins to dry the, the land, and he's remembering uh, Noah and the promise that he's made, which leads us to our third point. Is there's, the, there's the, uh, the words of promise. And this is where we get to our text today. And in the latter part of chapter 8, the second half of the story, you see the judgment, you see the storm, the building the boat, the animals are on, they go through it, and now it's subsiding. What's going to take place? We often stop there. But this is amazing. Look at verse 20 of chapter 8. It says, Noah built an altar to the Lord. It's one of the first things he did when he got off the boat. He took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered bird offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, God said in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of his heart is evil from his youth. Have you ever thought about this? Was this like the ultimate social experiment? Was God thinking to himself, let's just get some little remnant of good and faithful people on a boat, the kind of people I like, and, and then we'll leave the people I don't like. We'll let them kind of get extinguished we'll put those people in a boat and then at the end of it, we're going to start over again, create a new world and everything's going to be fine. Because <laughs> in a way, we were taught that, many of us with you. Remember the song they used to sing about the Arky Arky? Did anybody sing that in Sunday school? There's a verse in that song that I was always intrigued about. It goes like this. The wind blew and it dried out the landy, landy, landy. Everything came out so fine and dandy, dandy. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Da, 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 da. Children of the Lord. Yeah, some of you do know it. I didn't do the whole song. Did things turn out fine and dandy-dandy? You ever thought about what went into the ark with Noah? Lots of animals. But you know, I mean, his family, his wife, who actually is never mentioned by name. I don't know why. But sin went into the ark. Sin went into the ark with Noah. You say, how do you know? Because at the beginning of Genesis 6, God said, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually. But he repeats it at the other end. When they're out of the ark, he says again, the intention of man's heart, it's still evil. Sin went into the ark with, with Noah. Do you know the Bible takes violence and evil and the problem of suffering very serious? More serious than any other worldview. It's got a name. It's called sin. And sin isn't just the issue of poor behavior. It's not eliminated by getting the wrong people off the earth and the right people into the ark. It's much deeper than that. Did the flood solve this dual problem of human wickedness and God's pain over the wickedness that spread on the earth? The flood didn't solve that problem. The Lord was under no illusion that mankind had suddenly turned over a new leaf and Noah and his family had learned from the flood and they were going to go on and they were going to do better from this point on. No, the truth is Noah wasn't perfect. He found favor with God. He honored God, but he still had a sin nature. At the end of the story in chapter 9, he discovered Noah drunk and naked, royally screwing up what's going on in his life. Noah is no better after the flood. What's so significant in the story is that grace had found Noah, and he's on the ark. You know, that speaks to us today. We all deserve the flood. The Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. The wages of sin is death. But the remarkable thing about this story is not God's judgment, it's not the flood, it's the amazing grace of God, that he would see Noah, that he would save him, and that God would save you and he would save me. The flood points us to something greater. The flood is a story of grace. Noah offers up sacrifices to God when he gets off the boat from clean animals. Maybe that's why in Genesis 7, 2, he took some extra pairs of the animals with him. It's very interesting. It says... His offering was a pleasing aroma to God. The Hebrew actually would would translate directly, an aroma that puts to rest. This aroma that goes up to God actually brings God's heart to rest. God's grieving heart is put to rest, not by the flood, but the aroma rising from Noah's offering. This is the very first burnt offering in Scripture, a sacrificial offering in Scripture. And you know where that's going to go in the future as so you read through your Bible. In verse 21, God says then, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer, winter, night and day shall not cease. They get off the boat He does this offering of worship to God and acknowledgement that God has spared him and his family. And it says, God is, God's heart is, is pleased by this act of devotion. And God responds to him with a promise of faithfulness. He's not going to destroy the earth again. And we find that God says, I've made this covenant and the word covenant literally means an unconditional promise of God. It's not merited. It's the gift of God. It's an unconditional promise. And in the latter part of chapter 8 and the early part of chapter 9, there's this covenant, these promises that God makes to to Noah and the ensuing generations that I think is so beautiful. And I don't know if you've read them, but I'm going to unpack three of them. I can't go through every one of them, but it's so beautiful to see what God does in his faithfulness. The first one is God says, I want to affirm my care of all creation, the care of God for all creation. The covenant I've made with Noah and his family, the covenant between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all generations to come. What struck me was it says, he made it with Noah and his family and every living creature. Did you know five times in the latter part of chapter eight, in the early part of chapter nine, God affirms that he's made a covenant, not just with Noah and his family, but with the animals. (laughs) That's interesting. What is God saving the earth from? Chapter eight tells us human sin. He says, "Never again will I curse the earth because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood." God's going to save the whole earth from human sin, and He says, "I'm going to protect the animals." It's, it's interesting. Uh, in Romans chapter eight, verse nineteen, it says, "All creation eagerly awaits the revealing of the sons of God, for creation itself be set free from its bondage to what to corruption." Obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. Let me put it in lay terms. Nature is chomping at the bit to be restored to its ultimate purpose because sin has marred all of creation. And God says, I love the people, but I also love all that I've created. They matter to me. And so he says, I'm not going to destroy them by flood again. The second thing that I think you can see in the the verse 6 here is the extraordinary value of human life. As God has the first Adam now in sin, it's like almost like a second Adam and Noah. He's, he's torn it down. He's going to rebuild it. And, and he sends him out and he says, be fruitful and multiply. Repopulate the earth. I picked this shirt on purpose because it's got, it's got storks on it. <laughs> and, and chapter 9 verse 1 says, repopulate the earth. The other reason is I bought this shirt in Maui. Uh, just a couple miles from where the fire was. So this is kind of my tribute to the people whose lives were lost. That's sad. The extraordinary value of human life. Notice this verse, it says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. In verse 6 it says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Look at the last verse or the last part of the verse for God made man in his own image. I want you to see here the extreme value. The value above everything else on earth that God puts on the human family. God is pro-life in every possible way. Which means that those of you who know him and you you walk in in Jesus and know God personally and are part of that covenant relationship, the new covenant we have in Jesus. Friends, we should protect innocent life at every level. The value placed on something is shown by the price you'll pay for it. Isn't that true? I mean, it's true about things that you purchase. You say, what's it worth? Someone will pay for it. And God says, human beings are worth so much. They're so valuable that there's only one thing equal to it. The only thing equal to human life on earth is another human life. I'm not going to argue on the the whole issue of capital punishment. I think the point here is God's saying human beings have incredible value. And then he tells them as well, interesting, he says, I want to restore all of creation and honor the animals, but he says, but you can eat the animals. And in the first part of Genesis, they're vegetarians, I guess, and now he says, you can eat the animals. One theologian made this observation, he says, is God perhaps saying animals matter, but humans are created in his image. We have a soul and a spirit. We matter to God. Friends, from the very beginning, every human being, whatever race, color, age, economic status, level of intelligence, level of development, they bear God's image. They're precious in his sight. You matter to God. You may not feel it. You may not think it. You may have been told otherwise, but you've been made in his image and you matter to him more than you would ever, ever, ever imagine. We should take hope in that matter so much to God that he'd give his son for you and for me the third promise God makes is the promise not to destroy by flood in verses 14 and 15 God already knows that having done the flood it's not going to ultimately change things he said I'll never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of his heart is still evil since its youth that sense doesn't make much sense I was thinking if you wrote a, a, a 2023 modern cultural version I think here's what we would say if we put words in God's mouth we'd say I'm not going to destroy the earth again because I know men and women humankind are going to do much better this time around because <laughs> yeah? we're, we're optimists <laughs> but sometimes we're not realists God says they still have a propensity to sin so God at this point in the story this is is the cool part this is to quote Dave this is amazing okay apparently he says that a lot I've heard this is amazing God says I'm going to give him a sign of my covenant so what is the sign look at this verse it says I have set my bow in the cloud and it'll be a sign of the covenant between me and earth you say, no, no you, Did you say rainbow? No, it actually, the Hebrew word here is bow. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher said, it's, is this word is the bow like a warrior's bow. Look at the shape of a rainbow. It, it, you, you crank it back and you let it go. Which way is the bow pointing? In the early part of the book, God has brought judgment. The bow is turned and it's pointed heavenward. Spurgeon says, God has laid down his war bow in the heavens. But as a matter of fact, if you look at the bow, it's pointed back toward heaven. One day God's going to wipe out evil entirely on earth by taking the arrows of his own wrath on himself. You start to see a hint of Jesus here. One day Jesus is going to come. I think Noah is pointing to a better day. Like Noah, he will obey God even though no one understands him. And through his obedience, will provide an ark of salvation. Jesus, unlike Noah, will succeed in every way to the end. His life won't end in a drunken super. No, Jesus will say, not my will, but your will be done. Like Noah's ark, he'll shield us from the storm of God's wrath and lift us up above the waters of judgment. But unlike Noah, the ark that shields us from wrath will not be carried in a gopherwood boat. No, no, it'll be Jesus' wooden cross. We'll be lifted above the waters of judgment because Jesus will be submerged into them. Like Noah, Jesus will emerge in the storm of God's judgment and he'll begin a new creation. But unlike Noah, this new race will not have hearts whose thoughts are always evil continually. For God desires to start a new creation. People formed in his image, in his likeness, who reflect his love. Think of Jesus as the ark who rescues us. Christ is the one who carries us through the waves and the storms of life and death and judgment. Every storm we face, especially the storm of the wrath of God, we are saved from the storm and through the storm we hide ourselves in Christ. Isn't that cool? The story of Noah is really giving us the beginning of the foreshadow, the painting of the picture of what Jesus is going to do as the ultimate rescuer who he himself will take judgment and go through and pass Rise from the dead so we can be forgiven, accepted, we can be made new, we can be new creation, we can know his spirit, we can walk with him. Wow. Think of Noah. First time it rained after the flood. Oh no. And then, you know, I wonder if there's some trepidation. But I was thinking in contrast to For those of us now who look back on Jesus and what he did for us and his incredible rescue when it rains, why don't you think of it as amazing grace coming down? The amazing promise of God, grace upon grace, the unmerited favor of God, the unmerited forgiveness of God we have through faith in Christ. We don't have to be fearful of death. We don't have to be fearful of judgment because Christ took it for us. He is our ark of safety. Amen. So here's your assignment next time it rains look up the next time you see a rainbow don't let it be hijacked by our culture but see the promise of god and his incredible faithful love and his love for you and that you can trust him i'm gonna invite the worship team to come out if they would but i'm going invite you to bow in prayer i want to ask you a question have you fled to jesus for refuge Maybe you're just aware of the sinfulness of your own soul. And I've talked to people who said, man, I just feel like God is judging me. I feel like God's mad at me. I don't think I could approach God. I want to encourage you. That's just, I think, the evil one talking to you. God loves you more than you know. And he wants to provide a way of release, a way of escape, a way of forgiveness in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus died so you wouldn't have to. Open your heart to him. Oh, Heavenly Father, we've considered a lot of things this morning about the story, how to interpret it, how to apply it. But I pray all this information, we would not miss the one central truth of this story and every story of Scripture, that Jesus is our hope, that he is our salvation. He is our life. I pray this morning that for any who have not found the rescue from judgment through Christ, that they would flee not to their own works, but to the work of Jesus in all but sufficiency, his death and resurrection on our behalf. Lord, thank you for your stubborn love for us and for your incredible grace, even though we deserve judgment, that you took judgment upon yourself that we could be free. We give you praise. Lord, I pray that we live out uh, your image in our lives, making a difference with your love in the world around us. So speak to us, lead us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.